This is an ABC podcast. Defence spending will be fast-tracked as Australia looks to beef up its ability to react to an increasingly contested Indo-Pacific region. It starts to increase the, the hitting power of the Defence Force in the short term. This document is framing the, the challenges within the international system, major power competition, etc. Is this the appropriate uh, expenditure? There's a lot more to this document and I think the key message is really about deterrence, about preparing the Australian Defence Force to actually be able to uh, deter... Australia's military strategists and defence analysts are still digesting, discussing and debating the Morrison government's upgrade to defence capabilities, some $270 billion over the next 10 years. It seems like a lot of money, and it is, of course. But these days, military hardware doesn't come cheap. A new anti-ship missile, for instance, will set you back around $4 million a pop. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Rising risks and sinking safeguards. They're our themes today as we examine the upward trend in global military expenditure. We'll also look at the breakdown of traditional arms reduction and containment treaties. The biggest of them, New Start, is due for renewal early next year, but would a second term for President Trump derail the agreement? We could see a new kind of arms race. We could see, as President Trump has indicated, the resumption of testing. And I think all of these are very much a step backwards. First, though, let's get a global perspective on the uptake in military expenditure. Here's Nan Tian, a senior researcher with the Arms Control and Expenditure Program at CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. I mean, 2019, we've seen the highest level of military spending since basically CIPRI started measuring world spending back to 1988. It is at 1.9 trillion dollars, even a bit over that actually, and it's been steadily rising for the last five years. $1.9 trillion. And just to be clear, that's American dollars. The latest CIPRI research suggests that while the world's major military players have been spending up big in recent years, it's not exactly a level playing field. So... If we break this down, world military spending is roughly $1.9 trillion. USA spending is basically 38% of that, so $732 billion. And it is over two times larger than the next largest spender, which is China, at $261 billion. And if we kind of keep going down this ranking, you would see that the United States spends more than the next eight countries combined, including China. So we're looking at China plus India, plus Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, UK, total combined is equivalent to US spending. They have military bases, you know, in Africa, right, close to the Middle East, in, in Germany, in South Korea, in Japan. You know, they have the sphere of influence that stretches very much around the world compared to, let's say, China, where their sphere of influence is really very much close to its geographical location and now trying to expand a bit into Africa. So you can kind of understand the scale of U.S. spending. 
And China's influence in Asia, I mean, how has the rise in Chinese military spending, how has that affected the military spending of other countries in the region? So what we've seen in um, the recent trends is that, of course, China has been rising, has seen seen rising military spending over the last 20 years. And it's really almost driven what we would term a regional security. It's difficult to say, I guess, arms race, but more of a security dilemma where you have close neighbors which uh, see China as really much as regional threat or neighborhood threat. So we have India on one hand that's also continued to increase its spending. China's recent activities within the South China Sea, its expansion of its navy has really affected other neighboring countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, and even Japan and South Korea, where to an extent we've all seen this whole region or even sub-region, if you look at Southeast Asia or East Asia, really increases spending in the whole area because of the perceived threat that China would have, that they are essentially arming themselves arming what well, the countries see China as arming themselves as becoming a threat. And thus, in return, these other neighboring countries are also spending more on the military, buying weapons that specifically counter China, let's say, within the South China Sea. What should we make of the fact that three of the biggest military spenders, the United States, China and Russia, are also among the world's biggest arms manufacturers? Is that significant? Well, it's definitely tells the story that if you spend more on the military, you're also spending a lot to boost your domestic arms industry, to support your domestic arms industry to be able to basically produce weapons, not only for your own consumption, but also for the export or the demand from other countries. And and it generally makes sense because, you know, having a a well-established or a profit-making or even not loss-making arms industry can become very expensive. And it's only really the biggest military spenders that can actually afford to have these well-established large uh, arms industries that really make the weapons that other countries basically can't afford to start making or establish. And then, of course, the rest of the world would have to buy their weapons if there ever uh, is a need or demand for it. So the world is increasingly taking on a more khaki or camouflage hue, even, it seems, in Europe. Europe has generally been quite stable over the last 10, 15 years, but they definitely have seen an uptick in spending in Western Europe, in some of these major spenders such as Germany, Netherlands, where I think it's very much a reaction to, in a way, Trump, the US, putting pressure on Western European NATO countries to up their share of military spending. Right? They talk about burden sharing, that you should up your spending 2% of GDP. So the last one or two years, we've seen really large countries, uh, large spending countries, increase its spending to almost meet the agreed uh, target. But then on the more central European side, we've seen that they've also increased their spending substantially because directly related to the perceived threat of Russia. Russia is still a very big player, even though they don't spend as much as they used to in, during the Cold War period. But it's still a very much big player, perceived threat for many of these central European countries. And They've been looking to try and arm themselves in a way to protect themselves against Russia. So Bulgaria, Romania increased spending by the hundreds of percents over the last 10 years. If you're worried about the future of the world and about rising political antagonisms, none of what we've just heard is going to make you feel any better. But here's the thing. Even though spending has been climbing for years... Dr Tian does have some hope 
that things from this point on could start to change. Just a little. I guess before the pandemic took off, the assumption or the what we had looked at in terms of the trends is that world spending would continue increasing. We saw that China had continued to implement their arms modernization program. The US, the world's largest spender, also had a very expensive modernization program. And this also had tend to see about uh, within the Western Europe with regarding uh, arguments of increasing the spending to 2% of the GDP. So all indicators seem to show that spending would keep increasing. But of course, with the pandemic and basically the largest economic crisis since 1929, definitely there's less money around in the world. And of course, countries need to start making difficult decisions regarding where you should spend your, I guess, scarce resources uh, in 2020 and 2021, etc. And so we see that there might be a priority shift into more healthcare and social infrastructure spending versus, uh, let's say, the military. And of course, we've seen this type of trend during the last financial crisis in 2008-2009, where spending was really at a peak and then it really decreased where we saw austerity measures being implemented in many Western European countries. So that's the broad trend. Do you expect, though, the two biggest military spenders, the United States and China, to also Mm -hmm. follow that trend and to uh, perhaps cut back in the next couple of years? It's an interesting question because, of course, China already released their budget for 2020. And what they mentioned was that military spending will increase by, I think, 6.4% in nominal terms. But then, of course, we would take into account the inflation. And this might see China's spending increase be the lowest in the last 20, 25 years, probably even at maybe 0.5%, 1%. So very minor increases versus what we had seen of the, the 7, 8, nine, even, you know, 15% increases in the last uh, 15 years in China's spending. So at least from what we've seen in the, uh, how, uh, how the, the Chinese state has announced the spending, there was still increase, but very much at a very minor rate. And in terms of the US, I guess this is still very much up for debate. Trump will, of course, continue to push for this military buildup, continue military spending increase, the need to have a strong military to counter what he calls, of course, the, the global threats in China, probably even in the Middle East, continue establishing its presence around the world. But again, how the US comes out of this pandemic very much will determine how much resources it has and how much it can dedicate to its military and, of course, other sectors in the coming years. Dr. Nan Tian from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And here's another interesting development. Since the mid-1980s, the global stockpile of nuclear weapons has dropped from a high of around 70,000 to approximately 13,500 today. That's significant, says arms control expert Marianne Hansen, but it still leaves the world poised on the brink of oblivion. Many of those weapons are hundreds of times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. All of the nine nuclear weapon states are modernizing their nuclear arsenals, making their nuclear weapons more lethal. So they are specializing in nuclear weapons which technically might have a small yield, but which in fact, because of their targeting capabilities, are going to be immensely destructive. All of the nuclear weapon states seem intent on raising the spectre of using their nuclear weapons. And unfortunately, for the most part, the public is not aware of the dangers involved. The US has indicated that it might resume testing nuclear weapons. 
What effect would that have on the international environment and on the, the tense nature of the international environment around nuclear weapons? Personally, I don't think that the United States will go ahead with that. I'm hoping that cooler heads will prevail. I think if the US goes ahead and tests nuclear weapons, it would signify to the world that the United States, far from downgrading the salience of nuclear weapons in their military doctrines, is reifying the position of nuclear weapons and threatening to use them. The message it would be sending to other states would be that it's okay for Russia to start testing, that it's okay for China, that it's okay for North Korea to test their nuclear weapons. This meeting has provoked a very strong reaction in Russia. The deputy foreign minister, Sergei Rybkov, said that Russia is intended to mobilize the international community in order to preserve the INF Treaty. He said that Russia sees this treaty as a cornerstone of the international and European security. And that Under Donald Trump, the US has turned up its nose at a string of important international arms limitation agreements and measures. It's abandoned the International Monitoring Agreement known as the Open Skies Treaty. It's signalled it will no longer adhere to the provisions of the Ottawa Treaty, which bans the use of landmines. And it's pulled out of the INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. The INF was specifically struck between the US and Russia. And President Trump says he's not in favour of any such treaty if it doesn't also include China. Marianne Hansen again. On one hand, there is every reason for China to be brought in into arms control agreements. But China argues, look, we've only got, you know, two or three hundred nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia have over 12,000. We're not going to come on board with any talks until you bring your numbers down much, much more. So that's a Chinese position, and I think it's likely to stay that way for some time. The problem is this. When the INF Treaty was negotiated in 86-87 by Ronald Reagan and, and Mikhail Gorbachev, China, of course, was not a looming threat at all. And although it, it certainly had its nuclear capabilities, these were seen as relatively inconsequential. And within the context of the Cold War, it was most important that it was Russia and the United States which agreed to remove thousands of short-range, short-medium-range and intermediate-range missiles which had been placed in Europe and which were a, a real danger in the Cold War. Now, if Russia and the United States revert back to the position of placing these missiles on European territory, that will have dire consequences for European people. China would say, well, that's just something for Washington and Moscow to negotiate themselves. They are not willing at this stage to come on board in terms of creating a successor treaty to the INF Treaty, precisely because the numbers are so disparate, really, between the three states. While the Trump administration has shown a particular disregard for arms limitation treaties, it's also important to point out that the US approach to multilateral arms control has long been complicated and problematic. 
This is partly a funny quirk of the American political system. What happens in the U.S. case is that the president can make treaties, but Congress has to ratify them. And president and Congress usually disagree about all kinds of international treaties. So it's this odd situation where the U.S. agrees to a lot of international treaties and then can't get them ratified or doesn't even bother trying to agree because they know that they won't be able to ratify. Associate Professor Sarah Percy. But previous presidents, what they typically do is they follow the treaty anyway. So, for example, in the case of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, the US has never ratified that treaty, but follows it in almost every regard. And the other one that's most relevant today is the anti-personnel landmine ban, which the US never signed, but again has followed almost to the letter with its own military. So what does that tell us about the mindset in the United States looking to the future? Well, I think there's two things to note there. One is it's really important for us to disaggregate Donald Trump from the United States writ large, because the habit of the United States ever since the end of World War II has been that they are involved in negotiating and participating in multilateral arms control and that they are actually reasonably enthusiastic participators. And even when they can't get it ratified, they follow the rules anyway. So Trump is very much a break with tradition here. However, it's also important to note that the U.S. has always been, at the Congress level, pretty skeptical about multilateral treaties. That's where you see those traditional forces of U.S. isolationism working in, is through Congress. Those concerned about the future of arms limitation agreements now have their eyes firmly fixed on February 2021. That's when perhaps the most important treaty of them all, New START, comes up for renewal. Good morning. We will watch the signing, the historical signing of another treaty between Russia and USA. And the President of the United States. New START is the successor to the first START treaty negotiated in 1991. But even at this late stage, it's unclear whether Donald Trump will sign a new agreement. If that treaty is not renewed in February and things are not looking very rosy at the moment, then there will be zero agreements between the United States and Russia with regard to controlling their nuclear arms. So effectively, we would be back in a state of no regulations, no constraints. This in turn may precipitate a greater buildup of nuclear weapons by these states. It may encourage more adventurous behavior or posturing by these nuclear weapon states. Essentially, it, it signals to the world that these two states do not feel themselves constrained in any way with regard to their possession of nuclear weapons. So, we could see a new kind of arms race. We could see as President Trump has indicated, a resumption of testing. And I think all of these are very much a step backwards. Even one nuclear weapon will have a catastrophic impact. And if there are no, nothing to sort of constrain the great powers in any way, this is not a good time for international security. And come November, if Donald Trump loses the 2020 presidential election, what then? 
I would imagine that a, a Democrat president advised by much more liberal foreign policy establishment would immediately pursue negotiations. I think it's also important to remember here what we're talking about are arms limitations that really prevent the crazy and bonkers. So one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is at the height of the Cold War, you have everything from nuclear rocket launchers to nuclear landmines. I mean, you had nuclear proliferation extending its fingers into everything. It wasn't just missiles. And so without these treaties, we actually move to a situation of arms racing, which is not only dangerous, but it's crazy. The idea that you could have some sort of nuclear battlefield tactical weapon and shoot each other, that is stuff that we should never want to see. So I think the Trump administration tends to portray these agreements as you know, irrational and a real constraint on American power. But actually what they do is constrain arms racing and constraining arms racing is really good for everybody's power. Associate Professor Sarah Percy from the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. And before her, Associate Professor Marianne Hansen, a specialist in arms control and disarmament, also based at UQ. You're with Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I'm Anthony Fennell. Drones have already raised questions about 21st century warfare, but while they have no pilots, they are controlled by humans on the ground. A human finger is on the trigger. Not so with lethal autonomous robots. I want to finish today with an update on the campaign to stop killer robots, an international initiative to try and prevent the further development of lethal autonomous weapon systems. The issue came up for discussion recently at a virtual meeting of the UN Security Council. Artificial intelligence specialist Professor Toby Walsh is a long-time spokesperson for the campaign. 30 nations now have called for a preemptive ban. Uh, that includes some significant players. It includes the European Parliament's called, the African Union's called, so a significant number of countries. But still there is significant pushback from nations like the United States, the United Kingdom, Russia, and to a certain extent, China. Can I get you to give us a bit of an outline of the types of autonomous weapons that are being developed? Because there is quite a wide variety, isn't there? Yes, there is a wide variety of autonomous weapons being developed and in some cases almost already starting to be deployed. In fact, you can pick every theatre of war that we play in, whether it be in the air, we see autonomous drones. Turkey has built itself some homegrown autonomous drones that are now flying on the Syrian border. You can see on the sea, the US Navy has launched its first fully autonomous ship that made a, a significant a voyage from Hawaii to the west coast of the United States without any human assistance. Under the sea, you see autonomous submarines. I think perhaps what, the thing that most frightens me, if you wanted to say the weapon that most frightens me, is that Russia are claiming to be developing a fully autonomous nuclear-powered submarine with nuclear-tipped missiles in it. I think only thing worse than the fully autonomous weapon is a fully autonomous nuclear weapon giving the right to a machine to decide to set off a nuclear bomb sounds to take the world to a very dangerous, dark place. The Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, is pushing for a new international treaty to prohibit fully autonomous weapons. Now, given that you have pushback from those countries, as you say, what's the chance of, of him getting that up? Well, we have regulated 
other technologies, despite opposition from some of those nations. And I think, you know, the Secretary General puts his finger on it very nicely. He says, let's call it as it is. These weapons are morally repugnant, and they are morally repugnant, and they will need to be regulated. And so I'm confident that we will do that in the long term. What keeps me awake at night is whether we'll have to see them being used in anger, being used against civilians, being used by terrorists and rogue states before we actually have the conviction and courage to do that. Now, 30 states are supporting the campaign, but that's still only a, a fraction of the world's nations, isn't it? That's, that's not a lot, really. It's 13 nations. There are 200 some nations in in the United Nations. So there's still a long way to go. The significant public support, uh, the most recent Ipsos survey in 21 different countries showed that more than 60% of those surveyed felt that we should regulate those. Um, And my experience talking to people is as soon as they become informed about this issue, most people side with the scientists like myself who are calling for regulation. What should we make of the fact that many of the people speaking out and warning the world about the rise of killer robots have a background, as you say, like yourself, in studying and developing artificial intelligence? If there's one thing good that's come out of the global pandemic, I hope it is that the public as a whole is better willing and wanting to listen to the advice of scientists. And here we have a very clear case, like with the climate emergency, like with the pandemic, where scientists have been issuing warnings about this for a number of years. It's not just myself, it's thousands of my colleagues. The vast majority of the people who I work with and respect have said similar things, that this technology will take us to a very dangerous place. It's it's not only morally repugnant, there are technical concerns about the, the capabilities of the technology to be able to to make these life or death decisions. And then, there, of course, there are legal concerns as to, you know, these will violate the rules of war, the way that we fight war. And so I think for many reasons that we will need to regulate them. All five members of the UN Security Council, as I understand it, have autonomous weapons development programs. Is it overstating it to suggest that there's, there's an arms race underway with regard to the development of AI-enhanced weaponry? It's not understating it to say there's an arms race. We warned in an open letter to the United Nations nearly five years ago that there would be an arms race, and you can see that arms race happening now. It's worth pointing out, there's a lot of money that's going to be made selling these arms, that arms companies around the world are going to, these are going to be the Kalashnikovs of the future. They're going to make a lot of money selling these arms, uh, autonomous arms, and then selling defences to these autonomous arms and so on. And so it's going to be a billion-dollar business, and that's partly what's driving it. You've pointed out that autonomous weapons could become weapons of mass destruction. Just explain that idea to us. Yes, I think this is one of the most interesting moral arguments, and in fact, one of the arguments why we will ultimately ban them, because we've banned every other weapon of mass destruction, chemical weapons, biological weapons, and even nuclear weapons, which is that these allow us to scale warfare in a way that we've only ever been previously able to scale warfare with other weapons of mass destruction. If you wanted to do harm in the past, you had to have a army. You had to persuade a thousand people to do your evil way, to, you had to train them, equip them, feed them, But now you wouldn't. You'd need just one programmer and a thousand autonomous drones or a thousand autonomous tanks, and you could do what previously took a thousand people. And so that allows you to scale warfare, industrialize warfare in a way that only other weapons of mass destruction allow you to do. One argument that's sometimes made is that if authoritarian countries like Russia and China are developing these types of weapons, that the democratic West simply has no choice but to also develop them to stay in the race. How would you respond to that? 
the challenge is that we are locked into one of these cycles where no one actually wants to develop them. But, but because of fear of the other side, like in the Cold War, then we may be forced in, into a feedback loop of developing them ourselves. Um, I think what's important here is to, is to look at the history of how we've regulated other technologies, which is that we decided they were morally repugnant. We decided chemical weapons after the horrors of First World War were morally repugnant. And uh, that has largely limited them by authoritarian states, by, by rogue states and by terrorist organizations. When they do get used, as occasionally they still get used, chemical weapons do occasionally get used in Syria and elsewhere, the world universally condemns them. There's headlines around the world and there are sanctions, military, economic and other that are imposed to limit their use. And so that's what I think we could hope for here. The first step there would be we have to decide they're morally repugnant. And then they wouldn't be sold by arms companies, they wouldn't be widely available. And even authoritarian states are limited in their use of, for example, chemical weapons. Professor Toby Walsh, an artificial intelligence researcher with the University of New South Wales and Data61. He's also a spokesperson for the campaign to stop killer robots. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.